Good afternoon and welcome. I'm John Sutton from the Department of Economics, which is hosting today's lecture by our BP visiting professor, Michael Winston of MIT. Mike Winston is one of the most distinguished figures in the field of industrial organization. His remarkably broad range of significant contributions span topics from options, anti-competitive practices, contracting, vertical integration. Recently, his work has explored computational models of the effect of mergers and the economics of health insurance. But today he's going to tell us something about a topic that's relevant to all of us, the easing of the lockdown. Mike's gonna talk for 45 minutes or so, and then we'll have a Q&A of about 15 minutes. When Mike pauses for questions in the middle of the talk, you can use your Q&A tab to type in a question. The hashtag for the meeting is LSE COVID-19. Mike, the floor is yours. John, it's a pleasure to uh, be here speaking to everybody. Um, you know, when I first started thinking about this uh, lecture back in January or in January, early February, I was uh, thinking I would talk about uh, a topic of, of great interest uh, to everybody, uh, which was uh, merger policy. Um, and uh, that has... Uh, Let's just say times have changed. Times have changed since then, and uh, so um, today, as John said, I'll be talking about uh, a policy towards COVID. Um, so uh, this is actually the second. I should mention this is the second time that I have uh, um, been on sabbatical in the UK. Uh, back in two thousand eight and nine, I was on sabbatical at Oxford for the year with my family, uh, which is a lovely year. The only thing about it was that. Within three weeks of my getting there, um, Lehman Brothers collapsed. So uh, I think the, the perhaps the lesson is if you find here that I'm coming to the UK on sabbatical, uh, you should sell the market short immediately. So um, anyway, I hope this doesn't stop you guys from inviting me back again. Let me just say that. Um, so uh, today, let me uh, share my screen and uh, we can get going on the talk. Um, so uh, this is a, a paper that's joint with Daron Esamoglu, Viktor Chernozukov, uh, and Ivan Werning, all colleagues of mine at MIT. And, um, you know, we when we started this paper, just as a way of background, it was, you know, actually, you know, for me, it, it kind of started in mid-March. Um, and, uh, largely around reading the Ferguson uh, paper, the Imperial College uh, report. And uh, um, things seemed so grim uh, when I read that, that, um, you know, on the one hand, we could, um, you know, uh, keep things open and, and at least in the U.S. have 2.2 million deaths, according to that uh, report. And that was not even counting uh, increases in fatalities from uh, overwhelming the healthcare system. Uh, on the other hand, you know, we could be shut down for, for the year and a half to two years for two thirds of that time uh, in alternating on off cycles uh, that Ferguson considered, that the Ferguson report considered. And, uh, you know, pretty much uh, managed to start perhaps another Great Depression. And uh, neither one of those seemed like a very attractive prospect. So, um, you know, I, I think the four of us uh, started talking about this. And, you know, I think really in large part, what we are trying to do or started, wanted to try to 
think about is whether in a way there was a way to thread the needle, or, you know, to, to do things that, um, you know, not only weren't as extreme as those two things, but actually could improve the set of options that uh, societies had. Um, and so that's, that was sort of the genesis of, of this uh, effort. Um, okay, so um, kind of as a starting point, the paper is really based around uh, SIR models, uh, basically the kind of a core uh, epidemiological model uh, that's used to model um, infectious, infection transmission. <clears throat> and, you know, people, not everybody, but, but uh, you know, the, the majority of analyses that have been looking at uh, COVID uh, have been using SIR models. So for those who are not familiar, I, I actually had never even heard of an SIR model at the start of March. Um, an SIR model, uh, it's called SIR because there are three groups at any time uh, that uh, the S, the I, and the R are referring to. S are susceptibles. Those are people who uh, have not yet been infected <clears throat> um, and so are uh, presumed to be susceptible to the infection. The second at any moment are the infected, uh, those who currently have the, uh, are infected with the uh, disease. And R stands for the recovered, those who've had it and uh, have recovered and it, uh, are typically in these models uh, presumed to be immune. Uh, I realize that, that there is some question about that in the case of COVID or for how long immunity lasts. Um, there's also, a, a, you know, in the case of um, uh, many diseases, a, a fourth group, which isn't mentioned here, which are the deceased. Um, and uh, so SINR refer to the three groups that exist at any moment of the living. And then there are people who unfortunately um, have passed away from the disease. Now, um, in, in, from the model is really useful in, in many, many ways. And, and it's a workhorse for epidemiologists. You know, it lets you uh, look at the timing of infection paths so that you can, for example, predict what the hospital needs are. Um, it lets you look at uh, effects of mitigation uh, on the path of the disease. It lets you talk about issues such as uh, herd immunity, uh, which we'll come to talking about a little bit later. Um, so, you know, it, and it has a very, very widespread use, as I, me I mentioned. Um, you know, now a question that you may have is, you know, obvious thing for the, this talk is like, what can economists bring to the table? What can we add? So, you know, I'd say, you know, the key thing that we bring to the table uh, you know, at a start point is to recognize that there are costs of lockdowns, that there are economic costs involved. Um, once you recognize that, the next step that an economist brings to the table is to recognize that there are potential trade-offs, that um, we can lock down uh, more tightly and uh, have worse economic outcomes, uh, or we can lock down less tightly and have uh, better economic outcomes. It isn't always monotonic, as I'll get to talk about later. For example, uh, a full not locking down at all actually can can turn out to not be very good for economic outcomes, uh, and I'll come to that later. And then the last thing, once you recognize there are trade-offs, of course, what economists you know love to do is optimize. And so, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, you know, the next step that you can do is to think about uh, optimal policy. And in thinking about optimal policy, you know, that's going to depend in part on how one weighs um, economic losses versus um, mortality, uh, you know, the losses 
from death that are non-economic. And um, we'll have a lot more to say uh, about how we do that uh, in a bit. Um, so, you know, I think one of the things when we started thinking, you know, I said, you know, we wanted to thread the needle and make, uh, in some sense, and um, try to make outcomes, see if we could, you know, come to some policy that would let outcomes be much better, uh, is that from the beginning, you know, a very striking fact about COVID is the very asymmetric or differential effects uh, that they have in mortality and uh, illness risk um, for different age groups. <clears throat> so, for example, um, you know, here I have numbers that are based on Ferguson's report. Uh, for those 20 to 49, roughly, you know, the mortality rate is one-tenth of one percent. Uh, for those 50 to 64 years old, the mortality rate is about 1%. And for those 65 and older, the mortality rate uh, is 6%. Um, you know, in fact, uh, you know, there is uncertainties about the levels, you know, and I think, you know, partly the, inf the information on these mortality rates has been surprised, you know, remarkably bad because of the lack of, of testing, of widespread testing. But I think one thing that's not controversial is the differentials. That is that uh, the mortality rates are, are you know, multiples higher as you get older. Um, so that's, a, that's kind of a, a first thing that was very striking to us. And the second thing that's striking is that you know, the, the workforce participation of those 65 and older is much lower. So in the U.S., only about 20% of, of uh, the elderly, those over 65, uh, are employed uh, versus about 85% of those under 65%. Uh, uh, and so, you know, there's a very big difference in the economic costs as well of lockdowns. So this was kind of the thing that motivated us uh, initially to think that we could uh, come up with policies that would be much better than just blanket, the kind of blanket policies that were discussed in the Ferguson report. Um, so, um, uh, and I should say, by the way, that, you know, the Ferguson report did talk about uh, as well, having different, some differential age policy as, as well. Um, so I don't mean to suggest that it was as simplistic as what I just said. Okay, so uh, what do we do? Well, what we do is we take a simple uh, SIR model. We expand it to allow for multiple risk groups. Um, and then we use that model to explore optimal policy implications. And in particular, optimal, uh, what optimal policies look like in terms of lockdowns of, uh, or stay-at-home orders of the, for the population. Um, and I should say at the, at the outset, you know, the, we're, we're going to say something about what the best outcomes are, you know, to a substantial degree, we, you know, you may be able to rely on individual behavior to uh, generate those outcomes, especially individual behavior guided by, uh, you know, strong recommendations. So we don't really get into, and I'll, you know, I'm sure this will come up later, um, exactly how um, the policies are implemented. Rather, we're just talking about what the best um, stay-at-home or lockdown uh, policies are. Um, when we do this, there's going to be some trade-off. That is, we're, relative to what an epidemiological model will be, you know, is our SIR, our multi-risk SIR model is going to be very, very simple. So, you know, I think you know many uh, epidemiological models have uh, you know a lot of uh, very disaggregated structure about 
geographic space and uh, transmission and other things. So we're going to strip the model down to a substantial degree in that dimension. But then what we're going to do is we're going to layer on policy and and do something that typically isn't done um, with uh, in the epidemiological literature to our knowledge, which is uh, explore optimality. Okay. So I've talked about heterogeneity. There, in fact, you know, we're going to look at age, but there are many kinds of heterogeneity. And you know, one could start thinking about similar kinds of targeting in other dimensions. You could think about by location. You know, in the U.S., we have New York City, but we also have uh, you know Vermont and Wyoming, where there's much less density. We have different locations, uh, you know, differing in need. You know, so there's essential workers and there are non-essential uh, workers already being differentiated. Um, but there's also differences in risk for different occupations, uh, both for the workers and for people who uh, frequent those businesses. Um, a really big factor are comorbidities. Uh, so those under 65 years old, you know, those who have um, you know, various conditions such as diabetes or, or obesity are known to be at much higher risk. You know, a large part of the reason that we didn't look at that is at the time we started this, we didn't really have very good data on uh, what the risk uh, the mortality rates were for those different uh, comorbid comorbidities. So what we focused on here is age. Okay, so in sum, you know, what are we going to do? We're going to look at this, you know, multi-risk SIL that we develop, uh, which allows us to study dynamics of infection. The application is going to have three groups, the young, the middle-aged, and the old, which are going to be those three age groups that uh, I showed before. 20 to, yeah, we're focusing just on adults, so it's going to be 20 to 49 years of age, uh, 50 to 64, and then 65 plus. And then we're going to set things up as an optimal control model, uh, control problem to solve for the optimal policies. And we're going to do that in two ways. One, we're going to first do it assuming that uh, we have to have uniform policies, that is policies, a lockdown that's the same for every group. And then uh, we're going to say, well, what's the benefit if instead we allow ourselves to differentiate by age group? Um, we're going to calibrate to the COVID literature uh, to a substantial degree. Um, here, I have to just say a, a couple of things. The, the version of the paper that I think was, you know, that our, our first version of this paper um, was, um, which is what is still, I think, being circulated and what I'm going to talk about for many of the results today. Uh, we calibrated many of them of the parameters to the to COVID, um, but there were two a, a few parameters that instead uh, we took um, uh, from a paper by Fernando Alvarez and co-authors by Economist paper uh, that was before us uh, that looked at uniform policies um, and. Before things are moving quickly, so before us means a few weeks before us. Um, but we felt that when we started, we felt it was very important that we wanted to be able to compare our results to the, to their paper. You know, as things have progressed, it's become very clear that what we do is compare our you know have our results be at, you know as good as they can be for COVID, um, and uh, so that you know people in public health or epidemiology. Uh, you know, feel like we're looking at parameters that makes makes sense. Um, and so what I'm going to show you today, a lot of the results are based on that first paper, but I'm going to show you some results that are close to a version to what we're going to have in the next version. Uh, the next version was going to be out today, I thought, um, is actually, I think, going to be early next week. Um, okay, with that said, what we're going to do is then, uh, you know, look 
at how trade-offs map, you know, are affected by uh, targeted policies. Okay, so here's kind of a picture um, of, you know, and uh, in terms of our, that kind of illustrates the way we think about things and, you know, lets me talk a little bit about our findings. So the bottom line here is they're gonna be really large gains from targeted policy. And so what do I mean by large gains? So, you know, a common economist thing to do might be to say, let me take a value, you know, a common value of life uh, that people use um, and find the optimal policy. And I think we feel like we don't wanna pick what the value of life is uh, for people. You know, and when I say value of life, I mean including emotional costs and otherwise. And I say that because policymakers, it's evident that policymakers have extremely different views on this. Um, you know, public health officials have very, very different views on this. Academics have different views on this. And the public has very different views on how much we should weight economic losses versus deaths. And so rather than, than do that uh, thing of picking one value, what we're going to do is we're going to trace out a frontier. We're going to show you basically in, in economics lingo, the Pareto frontier between output loss and deaths. So in this um, figure, the origin at zero is the bliss point, you know, no output loss, no deaths. The further to the Northeast you get, the worst out, the worse the outcomes are. So this solid curve here is a curve showing the possible choices, possible outcomes, uh, output loss and death outcomes that optimal, pol optimal uniform policies can achieve. So by allowing there to be different possible weightings of death and output loss and optimizing, we can trace this frontier out. Um, and so, um, so what you can see is for the most part, it's downward sloping. Um, you'll see though that uh, over, Sorry, um, give me one second here. I want to activate my pen if I can. Um, you know, over here we have uh, no control, and what you can see is, you know, the best point for economic outcome. If the only thing you cared about economic outcome is down there, it's the point on this curve that has the lowest output loss. No control is not that point generally. Um, and the reason is that illness and deaths have costs, uh, economic costs. And so um, as a general matter, just having no lockdown, no stay at home order is not going to be the best policy, even if the only thing you care about is economic losses. Um, and then our main point is going to be we're going to show you how this frontier shifts towards the origin if you start using optimal targeted policies. Um, so that's going to be the focus of how I discuss things. And I should say the first the paper that's currently exists does this frontier, you know, talks about this frontier um, and it's, you know, kind of a critical thing that we we're talking about. The presentation that the new version of the paper is going to do kind of put that even more uh, front and forward. Um, okay. So the second point is targeted policies help a lot, but one thing that really surprised us is that um, going, you know, differentiating the, the, past the difference between over 65 and under 65 is not a really big help. That is most, almost all of this gain, you know, the, just there's, is, comes from distinguishing between 65 year old, over 65 and under 65. We had thought going into this that there might be, you know, an optimal policy that let the, you know, under 50s come, you know, go out first and then only later had those between 50 and 65 go out given that they have higher uh, risk. It turns out um, 
it's true that the optimal policy does that, but the gains are are small. Um, so that's the second point. The third point I've already, uh, uh, um, actually, the third point I would say is, you know, it's sometimes e easy, you know, when, when we say you should have st a strong lockdown policy on the 65-year-olds, what we don't mean this is, <laughs> is that the optimal policy then necessarily releases the young and the middle age fully, immediately. Rather, optimal policies, what they're often doing, and I'll show you this later, we'll see this, is, you know, they have a very strict policy on the elderly, but they do lock down the young and the middle aged um, for a while and then gradually release them. And then the last point is that testing is very important. Um, so I'm going to show you something that adds to our optimal targeted policy, uh, increased testing. And um, that has a very, uh, you know, as everybody, you know, knows and talks about, can have a very, very important large effect. Um, and, it, you know, in the limit, if you could test everybody completely immediately uh, and instantaneously isolate them, targeting targeted policies wouldn't be important. There'd be no transmission at all of infection uh, or very little. Um, but, you know, so I, I guess the way we kind of think of our of these targeted policies is, you know, that, you know, where they really, where they come in to be handy and very, very handy is, you know, when you're not in that world of dramatically high test, of having very, very high testing. And, uh, you know, I, I haven't been following exactly where the UK is. I can tell you the US is definitely not in that world of uh, very high testing. So, um, okay, so those are the main findings. And, and what I'm going to do now is um, first show you the model. Um, and we'll go through that. Then I'm going to talk about the parameters and then I'll show you results. Okay, let me first uh, give you some important caveats. The A number one caveat is we are not epidemiologists um, and, you know, we don't pretend to be. And so, you know, our model is, uh, as I said, a stripped down SIR model. Um, we welcome, uh, I say this now, and I'll say it at the end of this slide, welcome feedback and suggestions from not just economists, but especially others. Um, second, the model specification and parameters are still highly uncertain. Um, one thing that um, is true is that this precise policies we'll see, you know, can be sensitive to those parameters. And so that's very important to keep in mind. And of course, they're also sensitive, as I'll show you, to how much you weight where you are on that frontier you know, how much you weight um, uh, deaths versus economic loss uh, costs. Um, at the same, you know, time, um, you know, we've done a lot of robustness checks and, you know, this qualitative conclusion, which is really what we stress, that targeted lockdowns can be very, very helpful at shifting outcomes towards better, shifting that frontier, um, that I think is a quite general point. Um, another point, and, you know, we may come to this in the discussion is, you know, you read the paper and it's like, oh, we just picked this variable L, you know, lock down the elderly, uh, you know, um, until the vaccine arrives or close to it. Uh, there's a lot of actual policy that requires careful implementation to achieve that. And, you know, perhaps we'll talk about some of that on the ground, but, um, it, you know, we certainly aren't the experts as to how to stand such a thing up. I mean, we have spent some time on that. And in fact, we have a, 
piece that came out in Time Magazine today um, that about half the piece is talking about some ideas for that, but um, it's very, very important. And at the same time, you know, I don't think we're the, the experts for that. Um, but you know, so in, in some, you know, we think there's a, you know, these targeted policies can be very, very helpful. And we're kind of emphasizing that general point. Um, and we obviously welcome comments and suggestions. Okay. The model. Uh, so we're going to start first by looking at this SIR model. Okay. So for those who are not familiar with the SIR model, if you pick up a you know a basic textbook and look at you know for an SIR model, you know the key thing in the SIR model is what generates new infections. And uh, in a, you know the textbook SIR model with a single group, um, where you know, let's suppose we normalize the population size to be one. Um, the thing that generates uh, new infections is this expression. Uh, beta, which is a parameter, times the number of uh, the share of the population S that's susceptible at that moment, times the share of the population that's infected at that moment. And, you know, if you think about it, it's a matching technology. Um, and uh, it's basically saying susceptibles and infected are out in the world and they run into each other. And uh, that, that generates new infections. Um, so, you know, when we do kind of go to the multi-risk model here, I've kind of shown just conceptually what we're doing. So we have, you know, this is an example with two groups. We'll actually have three. Um, so the new infection process so we have two groups. We have susceptibles of group one and susceptibles of group two. The new infection process is represented by these red uh, dashed arrows. So uh, they're dashed arrows because they're contacts. You know, the horizontal arrows are contacts between members who are infect of a single group who are infected or and susceptible, but as well they're intergroup uh, contacts. And so you know, one thing that's important in general for an infection transmission is what are the network? What's the network structure? Um, that connects different groups in the population together. Um, those things generate infections in our model. Um, the way infections play out is when you're infected, a susceptible then becomes infected. And in our model, there are going to be two kinds of infect ways that uh, you can be infected. You can have severe infection, in which case you're going to what you know we call needing an ICU. So, you know, there's been a lot, a lot, a big concern um, in everybody's discussions is not overwhelming hospital capacity. So we're going to need to want to keep track of what the ICU needs are that are generated by the infection path. And then um, if you have a mild version of COVID, you are what we call non-ICU. Um, in the model, ICU cases resolve by either becoming uh, uh, recovered or possibly dying, unfortunately. Uh, Non-ICU cases simply become recovered and it takes some amount of time for that to happen. So that's kind of how the model's gonna get structured. Um, the o, at any moment, the sum of these four, the four groups, S, I, R, and D, add up to uh, N, J, which is this within a group, add up to the share of the population, which is group J, um, and that we let, denote by N, J. And in our general model, um, multi-risk model, we, we generalize that new infection, um, that simple new infection uh, rule uh, in the way that's shown at the bottom of the slide. So um, 
basically, uh, the new infections in group J are going to be beta times SJ, that's the number of uh, susceptibles in group J, times something that generalizes the simple textbook model. And what you can see here is it's the sum of the number of infected over groups, and we're going to take account of network interactions between groups, these road A's. So that's one piece that's different. The second piece that's different is we have this denominator in here. And um, for those of you who are familiar with like the economics literature on matching, you'll remember, you know, the, the version that I had up that's the standard uh, kind of textbook version of SIR in economics is called quadratic matching. Matching that happened in the, co the coconut model of Peter Diamond in, uh, in you know, Peter Diamond's 1982 coconut model um, of unemployment. And so that's the kind of standard thing. And it's a, you know, a good model, for, you know, I think for um, geographic effects, like if we're all going to the shopping mall um, and there are more people in the shopping mall, everyone's closer together and we generate more infections. But it's maybe not as good a model for workplaces. If I'm working with five people all the time and, you know, and my work, having more infected in the population isn't what's important uh, for my risk. What's important is what share of the people I'm working with um, are infected. And so this version at the bottom allows for that. Alpha equals two, sorry, alpha equals um, two is the quadratic model uh, that we started with. Alpha equals one is a constant returns model where it's actually the share of infected that matters. So uh, in the paper, we do both. We look at the effects of moving away from quadratic. Today, I'm not actually going to talk about that. Okay. And as I said, alpha equals two is kind of the standard and the baseline I'll talk about today. Um, okay, so uh, the general model has J groups. Uh, the newly infected, as I said, can be mild or severe. The probability that group J, if infected, uh, has a severe case is iota J. Um, all infected cases resolve at some, with some Poisson prob uh, uh, rate called in gamma J for group J. Um, the mild, as I said, all recover. The severe um, resolve at a rate which is the same rate over time, but they might die or they might be they might recover. And a key thing is that the probability that you die um, is going to depend on a variable called HT, which is the uh, level of ICU needs in the population. Uh, so we're going to uh, iota. Basically, if you look at what HT is down here. Um, at the very bottom, uh, it's the sum, it's basically the sum over the ICU needs of the different groups at time t. And uh, so we're going to model uh, the death probability as depending on that. That's a difference from, you know, what happens with most uh, models when epidemiologists look at this. They, you know, tend to uh, say, well, if we don't control how much over capacity are we, uh-oh, we better control. And then they look at various uh, policies uh, such as on and off policy of Ferguson that keeps you uh, below ICU capacity. And, um, you know, for us, if we're optimizing, we've got to say what the, what happens if you do go over. And so we're going to specify that. Okay. Um, the next thing in the model is testing and isolation. So, um, if you, if the likely, basically, uh, there's a probability that if you are uh, infected, you are isolated. Um, 
Uh, and so you can think of that as what share of the time in which you're infected are you isolated. There's uh, a probability that if you're in the, for the ICU people, which is VJ, um, that might be when the ICU people first, you know, develop symptoms. Um, and there's a probability as well for non-ICU people that uh, they are isolated. And of course, many of those we believe are non-symptomatic. And so without testing, uh, tau could be, um, might be quite low. Um, there's also an issue about what happens with recovered agents. Um, we assume that in uh, what we do that they are immune and um, at least for the year and a half for the time period until the vaccine arrives. And uh, then uh, there's a probability kappa J that they're um, detected and separated, uh, that is isolated. Uh, sorry, uh, by separated, I don't mean isolated. I meant sent back to work uh, without having to be locked down. Um, so that depends, that parameter depends on whether you have serology testing uh, to, uh, or, you know, have testing to identify that someone did have the disease to start with. Okay, um, the model is going to have a lockdown parameter for each group, and there's going to be some upper bound. Uh, that upper bound is going to reflect, uh, it's going to be less than one uh, often because of the need for essential workers. Um, there's going to be, if you're locked down, there's some lost output from group J, which is WJ. And uh, importantly, we're going to assume lockdown is not perfect. Um, you know, you, people may uh, interact with uh, healthcare workers. They may go to the, have to go to the supermarket sometimes, or they may just, you know, violate the you know, rules and uh, go see other people. And so there's going to be an effectiveness parameter theta J. And so uh, the lockdown parameter affects what share of the population works. Uh, the share of the population that matters for generating infections is going to be one minus theta J times LJ. And then employment just follows the, is the obvious definition. I won't go through the algebra, but it's basically those who aren't locked down um, plus those who are uh, recovered and identified. Okay. Uh, the vaccine we're going to assume for, uh, arrives with certainty at some time T. Um, you certainly could incorporate uncertainty into it, into the model uh, for that. The reason we like doing the, running the model with a certain arrival time is that it makes it very clear kind of whether you're following a policy that's waiting for the vaccine um, or whether instead you're following more of a herd immu immunity policy. Um, so um, here's an ugly slide that we don't have to talk about. It's just the overall dynamics of infection in the model with everything I've just talked about. And since I've talked about it, and I think, you know, we understand conceptually what it is, this slide is only going to serve to confuse and take time. So I won't talk about it. The only thing is this first piece up here, that's generating new infections. And then out, this is a, a law of motion for infections. And the second piece is the resolution of infections um, over time as people uh, recover or die. Um, and this Alvar, a special case of this is that Alvarez model that I referred to. Um, and you also have laws of motion, which are kind of following the obvious way from, for the other uh, variables, S, D, and R, uh, for each group. Okay. So um, we are going to generate that frontier by, by uh, minimizing uh, a weighted sum of losses. Uh, there are going to be economic losses, which are represented um, you can think of as represented by this first term, and then there are going to be 
deaths. So these are the deaths at time t right there. Um, and chi j is going to be a parameter that includes a non-pecuniary value of life, chi. Uh, I won't, I'm going to, to save time, not go into some of the accounting that's in this formula, but it includes a parameter chi. And what we do is we basically, by changing chi, we trace out that frontier um, as we do different values of chi. And since we only do positive values of chi, we actually don't trace that part out. Um, so that's how it works. And uh, this model, I should say, has an aggregation property that um, uh, you can read about in the paper. And one interesting thing here is once you have this model and you're looking at optimal policies, you can also think about what the value is of moving the vaccine earlier uh, or you know, of changing when the vaccine arrives, um, which I think is, is a useful uh, aspect of the model. Um, okay. Let me pause here uh, to ask questions. Uh, just see if they're clarifying questions. I don't want to go on if people are confused about the model. Um, you can use your question and answer tab to uh, pose a question, and John will pose it to me if there are such questions. Um, so let me just pause there for a moment and see where we are. Well, we have had a flow of questions coming in, but the uh, questions are ones of a kind which we'll handle during the Q&A rather than clarifying. I think uh, things have been wonderfully clear so far, Mike, and you should just continue on. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, that means we can have a good discussion, so that's a good thing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> okay. Uh, parameter calibration. Okay. So as I mentioned, um, the, the version of the paper that now exists calibrated a lot of things to COVID, but not everything. Um, uh, or well, I try it, it, some of things. I think it took um, from this previous paper that uh, we're now adjusting. So, uh, fatality rates, a key thing, of course, those numbers that I showed you. Um, we did two things. One, we looked at Ferguson, um, and those numbers I showed you are basically very, very close to Ferguson's numbers. Um, you know, he didn't have exactly our age groups, but um, you could think of them as Ferguson numbers. Uh, we also looked at data in South Korea, which had a, has um, a pretty high level of testing. Uh, those, the South Korea numbers are almost identical to Ferguson for those under 65. Um, a noticeable fact is that they are like double Ferguson for those over 65. Um, and so we do some robustness exercises around that. Um, the Diamond Princess cruise ship actually is lower than Ferguson for those over 65. And so we thought for baseline, we would go with Ferguson. Um, our contagion rate, that value, that parameter beta, uh, we take as 0.2. It's one of the parameters we took following this Alvarez paper. It implies a value of what's called R0, the basic transmission uh, rate, uh, which is 3.6. And what that means is when, when there's like one person in the population who's infected and everybody else is susceptible, that infected person infects 3.6 people on average. Um, that's high uh, as it's turning out. And so, um, and it was higher than the Ferguson uh, number. So basically what, what we're doing now is using the Ferguson number. Uh, and I'll talk about that in a bit. The shares of the population we take from the US census, um, we use BLS, Bureau of Labor Statistics numbers for the US um, to come up with the weight, wage rates uh, for the different groups weighted by uh, participation in the workforce. Um, the base model in the paper, uh, the version of the paper that exists, 
kind of did a simple case actually by, you know, uh, in not by assuming that none of the old worked. Uh, we, this now has been changed, and I'll show you a version that uh, takes account of exactly how much the, the elderly work. Uh, the lock, maximal lockdowns are going to be 0.7 for the young and the middle age um, and one for the elderly. Um, we, in this base uh, model that we, um, the, in the first version of the paper, we took the isolation probability to be zero. Um, the new version bumps that up to 10%, uh, which is the probability that you are isolated if you're sick. And that's just uh, the 10% reflect will reflect um, just the fact that some people are too sick to work and socialize. Uh, the case is assumed to resolve in on average in 18 days and our um, baseline uh, effectiveness parameters uh, three quarters. Um, so we don't assume that if, uh, lockdowns are perfectly effective. Uh, the mortality rates are, as I said, the ones that are uh, up there in the corner. Um, okay, hospital capacity effects. So um, this is a you know an important thing you know everybody's very focused on on this. Um, this is a parameter that initially we took from uh, Alvarez, uh, which implied that if infection rates in the population were thirty percent, mortality would be f uh, multiplied by five times. Um, that's too high, as it's turned you know became clear to us. Um, you know we have to say something about that, and the truth of the matter is there's very little evidence on this um, because. There's only been a couple of cases like Lombardi where hospitals were overwhelmed. Um, but in the new version, uh, that number is going to be quite a bit lower. You have to realize like in the U.S., you know, if you're over two or three percent infection rate, you're over capacity uh, of the population, you're over capacity. Um, so 30 um, percent, if you had 30 percent infection rate, almost nobody's getting into an ICU. Okay. Um, the basically when there's the economic cost of death is going to take account of how much time of economic loss we lose because uh, between time of death and retirement um and then the assumption we're going to make is the vaccine is going to arrive in the baseline in one and a half years um for the simple case we're going to the baseline um we're going to assume that this uh, group interaction network structure is such that it's really just one big pool everybody's interacting with everybody equally um and we do robustness exercises around that i may show you one if we if we have some time um okay before we show results let me just pause uh, again just for clarifying questions if there's anything Nothing coming through here, Mike. I think. Okay, now we get to look at we get to look at pictures. That's a good thing. Okay, no more no more math. Um, okay, so um, here's our baseline, and what I'm showing you here um, is the front are the frontiers that we were talking about in stylized. And I showed you a stylized picture of before. So the red front uh, curve dash curve is the frontier of, op of what you can achieve with optimal uniform policies that lock. Uh, when they uh, lock down a, a group, they lock down all groups the same. Um, and, you know, the losses here, you know, I, I should say are, you know, that in part because our transmission parameter was large um, and in part because our, uh, what I call the quality penalty of being over ICU capacity was large. These are large death levels. You know, you know, if you do 
if you only cared about an economic loss, you'd be down here and you'd have 4% of your population dying. Now, that's higher than we think is actually uh, likely to be the problem, uh, what happens. And, and so, you know, our new numbers are going to be lower than that, but are going to reflect the same kind of thing that we see in this picture. So, you know, what we see in this picture is a really big gain from going to targeted policies. And um, so green are semi-targeted policies. Um, blue, and by I mean semi-targeted, what I mean is we only have different policies for those over 65 and those under 65. And then blue are fully targeted policies where you can do different things for all each of the three groups. And the obvious thing here is you can hardly see green. <laughs> so targeted policies are super helpful, but once you've targeted, done semi-targeted policy of distinguishing between the uh, elderly and the non-elderly, the gains from further targeting on age are very small. Um, so that's kind of the key. At some level, like that's the paper right there. Um, okay, so let me just show you what policies are like because there's interesting things in them. So this is the optimal uniform policy if uh, for a parameter value chi uh, of 20. So in the US, that would be a, like assigning a one point, uh, the, the average wage in the US is $60,000. So that would be like a $1.2 million um, dollar equivalent to the emo for the emotional or psychic um, non-pecuniary cost of death that you were assigning. Um, so what you see in this is um, it has, that optimal uniform policy has a, a very large economic loss. Uh, economic losses here is measured as fractions of one year of GDP. So you're basically losing just shy of 25% of one year of GDP. Um, the death rate in the population is uh, just a little under 2% uh, with this optimal uniform policy. So just, I should say, you know, in what point are we talking about? We're talking about that point on the frontier, okay? Oops, sorry, I made a mistake here. We're talking about this front point on the frontier right there. Um, so, um, okay, so what you see in this policy is you actually never go up to the maximal lockdown but you have a pretty strict lockdown to start with, and then you gradually release it over time. And it's only fully released at, you know, a little over four, these are days on the horizontal axis, a little over 400 days. A vaccine arrives at 456 days. Um, so, um, and this is the infection uh, rate that's associated with it over time on the right panel. One thing to notice here, which, I, you know, you hear about, quote, unquote, herd immunity. Sometimes it's a little hard to say, like, what is herd immunity? And the way to think about herd immunity is when you fully release the population, do infections start going back up or not? And what you can see in this picture is they don't. So this policy is what you would call a herd immunity policy. We slowly release people over time. We do that to basically, A, to not immediately have everybody in shopping malls and B, to not overwhelm the healthcare system at any time. So we release gradually, but over time, we eventually reach a point where we have herd immunity. And the reason is that the susceptible population has shrunk enough that um, infection transmission, an infected person doesn't infect that many more new people. Okay. Um, and as I said before, the, you know, very high losses, 1.8% death of adults and 25% loss of a year's GDP. Here's the optimal semi-targeted policy. Um, so 
what you see here is this is the policy for the elderly. You fully lock them down, in fact, until the vaccine arrives. And what you can see here is the once you do that, the optimal policy for the non-elderly is much less severe in terms of the lockdown. It ends after a little over 200 days. Um, the result of this is you've basically lowered the death rate um, here by almost half. Um, and you've lowered the fatalities as well by around half. So by going to this targeted policy, you cut the cost down. And this is, again, is for chi equals 20. You've cut the cost down um, by half. Um, now, it doesn't mean that you have to take you know, the gains that way. You could take all the gains in, um, you know, you know, going to half is moving this way. You know, what I just showed you, you could have taken the gains, you know, same economic loss and have instead, um, you know, save it all in mortality, in lowered mortality. And then the reductions in mortality would have been even bigger. Um, okay. And you can see here that this is kind of a, what I'd call a conditional herd immunity um, policy in that given that the elderly are locked down, once you release the young, uh, infections don't go back up for the young. Um, one thing to also note is the elderly are getting infected here, um, despite the um, fact that they're fully locked down. And that's because the lockdown is not fully effective. And it's, but we push down substantially what their infection uh, rate is. And you know, if you think about what's really going on here, like what's driving this policy, once you lock down the elderly, you know, that starts off, of course, immediately reducing fatalities. But then the second thing is once you've protected the elderly, releasing the young is much less costly in terms of, of uh, illness because you're, you're uh, protecting the elderly and the young are not going to affect, uh, not, you know, the amount to which the young infect the elderly is going to be greatly reduced. Okay. This is um, fully targeted where we now distinguish between those under 50 and those between uh, 50 and 64. And what you can see here is we do distinguish between them. The upper lockdown is for the middle-aged. This lockdown down here is for the young. Um, but, you know, though we're distinguishing between them, you know, the gains, if you look over here, are very small. And that, you know, we saw that in the frontiers. They, you know, the frontiers almost don't fall when you do this. So, yes, uh, you know, kind of a... I don't know whether to say it was disappointing for us or not disappointing, but it definitely was not what we expected when we uh, first started off. In fact, we first started off writing, an, before we did any research, we started off writing an op-ed that was going to talk about, you know, the benefits of perhaps releasing the young versus the middle age. And then, you know, we got cold feet before putting that op-ed out, thinking like, you know, we don't really know and uh, whether the gain is big or not, and we should do some, we should do the research. And uh, turns out the answer is it's not. Um, so, okay, here's an ex uh, interesting, if you, you know, move up that frontier and instead increase the value of life um, that you put, you know, chi equals 30, uh, so a 50% increase in what you call the non-pecuniary value of life, the uniform policy now gets uh, more severe. It lasts a little bit, it does last a little longer, but it also stays higher. Uh, for a more significant amount of time than before. And then what you can see here is this is not a herd immunity policy. This is a waiting for the vaccine policy because what you do is you only release people right near the end 
right before the vaccine shows up, you know, and you do that because, yeah, you're going to have some infection rate, but, you know, you'll get people back to work and there won't be that many infections. But infections start to climb um, as soon as you do that. It's just they don't climb very much because the vaccine arrives. So, um, so there is a, a, a real difference in the policy based on how much you're going to, where you're going to be on that frontier. Um, nonetheless, with this, once you, uh, if you do semi-targeted policy, you still would, you know, lock down the elderly entirely and then go for a herd immunity policy um, with the young and the middle-aged. Uh, that changes, I should say, you know, if you keep raising chi high enough and you, you know, you're, and you've, you put mortality concerns, uh, you know, high enough, you're going to start waiting for the vaccine for the young and the middle age to a substantial degree as well. Um, okay. Um, I'm going to just, I, I think the original, if I understand, um, we're going until 1.15, I think. Uh, uh, sorry, we're now in 15 minutes. And so I'm going to just show you things for another four or five minutes. And um, I will um, uh, turn it over to questions and answers. So, so this, uh, what I want to show you here is an alternative parameterization. Uh, this is, it's not exactly what we are going to do in the next version, and I'll tell you how, but it's very close. So um, we lower the transmission probability beta parameter so that we match Ferguson's baseline R0. Um, we also lower that mortality penalty to be, um, instead of, uh, you know, at 30% being five times at 30% infection rate, it's going to be a 30% increase in, in mortality. At a 20% infection rate, it's going to be 20%. Um, that actually may be a little low for the mortality penalty, I, I think. Um, we do a robustness exercise on that as well. But I think a reasonable upper bound on that mortality penalty is the share, you know, if you assume all ICU need, everyone with an ICU need um, where to die, it, it can't, probably can't be worse than that. And so that kind of get, could give you an upper bound on what that parameter should be. Okay, on the economic side, that's the health side. On the economic side, this version I'm about to show you, uh, instead of assuming total loss of productivity at home, it goes to kind of an opposite extreme and assumes that you only lose 43% of productivity. Um, and what we're act this is the one thing that's going to be different in, in our baseline in the next version. Uh, we're going to assume that that number is 70% in the version that's going to come out early next week. Um, we're going to take account of the fact that 20% of the elderly work, and we're going to assume that if there's a 10% chance you're, when you're infected, you can't work and socialize because you're too sick. Um, okay, here are the, the key thing here is when you do this, uh, here are the the um, frontiers in that case. Key thing here is, yes, the fatality numbers are lower, and yes, the economic losses are lower, but um, the basic picture, the basic value of targeting, um, is of semi-targeting is still very large, and the value of full targeting once you semi-target is very small. So it's the same qualitative picture that you get uh, in our existing paper. Um, okay. Uh, let me skip over what the policies are. Other than just saying that with this alternative policy at chi equals 20, you actually do go for, uh, waiting for the vaccine when you have a uniform policy. And in fact, you wait for the vaccine. Uh, so when you get up to chi equals 40, 
with this new parameterization, you wait for the vaccine for the young and the middle-aged in a, in a targeted policy as well. Um, okay, um, we do something about network structure where we say that there's a lower net, uh, interaction between uh, across age groups than within. Um, this lowers, uh, also helps to lower fatalities because now when you lock down the elderly, um, they don't interact as much with the young and the middle age that you uh, release. And you can see as a result, you actually have a milder lockdown on the young and the middle aged in the targeted policy, semi-targeted policy. Um, another thing you can do is think about testing and tracing. Um, you know, the key thing in this model is what's the probability that you isolate someone who's infected or what share of the time that they're infected do you isolate them? Um, if you only isolated the symptomatic, but you did it immediately when they became symptomatic, that probability would go up to about 40% from the 10% that's going to be in our new baseline. And what you would get here is, of course, lower fatalities, um, and you would also have a milder lockdown in a, in a semi-targeted policy on the young and the middle-aged. And it gets, if you go up to 60% with testing and tracing, uh, of course, it gets even better. And, you know, there's something, you know, that we do in the current paper where we say, well, suppose we combined um, increased testing, group distancing, where we, you know, not only lock down the elderly, but, you know, people don't visit, you know, young people don't visit them as much. You get to this, which, you know, we like to, among the four of us, call the silver bullet, which is um, you actually um, fully lock, you lock down the elderly. And you know they, you or encourage them to. I'm using the verb lockdown, but of course it could just be a, a, a guidance that, that that they follow. Um, and then you actually don't have to lock down the others at all at all um, once you have that kind of uh, you know group separation and um, in, and dramatically increased testing. So um, it's um, I guess that's the bottom line. There's really a the possibility of using smart smart policies um, to really increase uh, make outcomes much much better. Um, so uh, that's the last thing I'm going to show you. I do just want to say um, that we have this uh, interactive dashboard that we've built. Um, it's you know still a little bit in the work uh, being improved, but uh, what you can do is go to it and there's a tab you can. Um, this is not shown here, but where you can put in parameters and uh, it'll show you what the optimal policies are. The tab here is not for optimal policies, but you put in your favorite policy, you know, put in parameters and put in your favorite policy and see what it does. Um, and um, so, you know, it, it's, uh, I think, quite interesting to play around with as well. So let me um, stop there. And um, I'll stop screen sharing at this point. Um, and uh, I think turn it over to any questions of any kind you guys want to ask. And, and John. Um, I'm going to begin with a question that comes from Kate French. Are the deaths caused by the economic contraction itself allowed for in the model? Um, so the answer to that is no. Um, actually, there are two kinds of, of um, you know, so there's, there's some things that are left out in terms of uh, the economics and mortality. So on the, on the mortality side, um, 
I think that's a really good question. And, you know, we only are counting uh, fatalities fr directly from COVID. And, um, you know, if, I guess, you know, there's various ways in which health outcomes could be bad, you know, for reasons that are directly linked to the lockdown. Um, so for example, lockdown itself can have costs in terms of, you know, people getting depressed and suicidal and not being able to go to their doctor and having elective surgery canceled. Um, also true that having your loved ones die can cause other health problems for you um, because of stress and anxiety and other things. So I think, you know, those things we don't have in the model, and it's a very good point to recognize that. Um, there are also some, you know, important economic things that are not in it. So we count direct losses from um, lockdown. You know, people are not working right now, um, A, and B, when people die, we lose their future output. Um, we don't count anything about follow-on macroeconomic effects. So, you know, if being shut down causes a lot of businesses to go bankrupt, and, you know, that leads to, uh, you know, even when we potentially, you know, the vaccine arrives, you know, it makes economic outcome output not jump back to where it was before. You know, those are economic losses that we're not counting. Okay. Um, we we have a question from Toby Chambers asking: Have you thought in your model about considering hotspots in terms of industry clusters where? Uh, susceptibility is high. He mentions meatpacking as an area. Uh, how about that industry-wide dimension of differentiating? Uh, yes. So that that's a great question. You know, I, I think you know in the second slide, if you remember, I, I said that there are many other dimensions that you could think about uh, targeting on. Um, one of which is based on industry. Um, what you know, industries, and it, it's um, you know, it's a question of both um, two things on the industry side. One you mentioned, which is high, you know, some industries have higher risk. You know, in the meatpacking industry, people are locating themselves side by side, and I don't know if there's much you can do to mitigate in that setting. Um, hopefully, there is, um, but also, you know, there's also a value. Uh, you know, that's why, you know, it's already recognized in having essential work, quote, essential workers working, uh, even when we have uh, our, you know, current widespread lockdown policy. So, um, you know, I, I, there are, I think all of those things are things that could usefully be looked at. I think, you know, we wanted to um, try to go after something where um, we thought the gains would likely be big and where the model wouldn't get so complicated that it would obscure for us kind of what was going on. But I think all of these things are uh, potential things to look at. And I should say that not, they're, one of the really great things is, you know, economy, there've been, uh, there's been a tremendous amount of work by economists starting to try to look at issues in COVID. And some of them have been looking at um, 
industry issues. Um, I should mention another thing on the industry side is, you know, where you are in the supply chain matters. So like an industry could be really important for a bunch of other industries. Um, so there's, um, there are a lot of interesting issues, I think, to look at there, uh, which we haven't done in this paper. There's a question from Billy Davis, who says your silver bullet of lockdowning older people. Uh, does the modeling take into account the costs from the negative social impact of isolating this older group, the impact of negative mental health impacts and so on? Right. Um, so I, I, I think two things about that. You know, I think the, the first point is, is kind of goes back to the first question. You know, we are looking at um, mortality costs and not, um, not you know, mental health costs. I think you can interpret, um, you know, that W, which was the cost of locking down uh, in lost output. It doesn't have to just be uh, interpreted as uh, economic loss. Uh, it can include other kinds of psychic losses. The interpretation of what we're calling, you know, we're calling all of that an economic loss. And so if you bump that number up to represent psychic costs, I think, you know, you'd want to distinguish those, you know, the two different kinds of costs coming from lockdown, from the current lockdown. But you could, you know, you could use the model to, you could use the model to do that, interpreting the parameters um, differently. Um, you know, that said, I, I, I think a really, you know, coming back to something I said early on, you know, a really, really important thing here is, you know, how do you actually implement something like this? And a, and a very important part of that is actually supporting the, if you do something like this, is supporting the elderly um, in, in, in isolation. So that in the U.S., um, you know, there are roughly 52 million elderly, house, uh, elderly over 65. Um, in the U.S., 80, roughly 86% of them live in you know with by themselves or with you know elderly partners and you know only you hear about nursing homes a lot really only one and a half million uh, of them live uh, in nursing homes so you need to have different policies for those different things for the nursing home population a really important thing is making sure the staff isn't infected um, for the elderly living at home you need to you know try to have some way to support them in isolation and that is both doing things that help them be, you know, maintain isolation, physical isolation, whether it be having a core of, of people who, um, you know, that we like to think of, call the elderly care core uh, and talk about in this Time Magazine piece of um, people to help with shopping and other tasks, but also to help, you know, whether it's technology or other things to help with uh, emotional uh, isolation and that, that they would have. And so, you know, it's by super important i think to you know try to if you're going to think about doing a policy like this to have policy things that you do uh that are trying to deal with those things okay we're running very close to time but there are two questions here one from uh edna and uh one from priyanka krishnamurti that uh, focus on very similar things. Uh, they both ask that you think about therapeutics for COVID-19 being available uh, and 
what did you determine or estimate uh, as the time until the vaccine arrives? I think both of these questions are concerned to ask about how we should build in, in the present climate of uncertainty, assumptions about the likely arrival of a vaccine and what effect that will have on us. Right. Also the model. Uh, great, great question. Um, you know, as I uh, said, the ba in the baseline, we assume that it uh, arrives with certainty in a year and a half. Um, we took that to be, um, you know, in the range of what people talked about as feasible. Um, we do robustness exercises where we change that to a year and change it to two years. When you change it to a year, you tend to follow waiting for the vaccine policies more. Um, at a, you know, at a certain point, you do that. Um, the uncertainty part of that, I think, is a super interesting question, you know, it, it, like, which we don't get into at all, but I, I think would be great for someone to look at, you know, maybe us, maybe others, um, which is if you um, imagine that there's uncertainty and we're going to learn over time whether when the vaccine is going to arrive, what policies should you follow in the meantime? Um, and we haven't done anything on that. You know, I, I think like you could imagine that, you know, suppose that in a year we're going to learn about whether the vaccine is arriving in a year and a half or two years, or, you know, maybe even less than a year and a half. How would that change the policies we should follow now? And, um, you know, I think, as I say, we haven't done anything on that. And I think that's uh, an interesting question. You know, another interesting thing, which we haven't, talked about, but is again on the time dimension is what should you do? Everything we've done has just assumed a, you know, some level of testing, but, you know, how should, what should policy should you follow if testing is being ramped up over time? You know, that's another question. And you could also imagine if you have uncertainty about how much it's going to be able to be ramped up over time. So there, I guess the bottom line is there are a lot of interesting questions um, that I think, um, you know, people either some of you guys or us could look at and that are not just interesting, but important, like really important for knowing what the right policies are. Um, here in this paper, really what we were trying to do is point to one, you know, in, in make two points, really. One is if you if you think about things, uh, you know, smart policies, you can do a lot better than just simple, like very simple policies. And it's almost like you know, heating your home with a smart thermostat and heating zones, rather than using having one heating zone for your house and a thermostat that's from 1950. Um, and you just can really improve. You know, you can be comfortable with that fancy, nice thermostat at much lower cost. And um, Smart policies are kind of like that. And so that's the first thing. And the second is we went to go illustrate it, you know, looking at one particular kind of policy. And, um, I, you know, there are other things to do. And I think hopefully many of you will, will do them. Okay. Um, David Wood would like to ask you to clarify some of the numbers that are coming out in terms of your model in the presentation in terms of one percent fatality rate and so on he asks are these figures implying that the number of deaths we've seen so far are only a very small fraction of what we anticipate coming um so i'd say two things one 
Uh, remember what I said about the baselines that I showed you being uh, at high values of R. You know, the initial paper had a high value of R0 and a high, I think, too high mortality penalty. Um, those numbers do come down quite a lot in the next version. The, the same point comes through, um, you know, in terms of the conclusion about targeting. But uh, the numbers are... are uh, much lower and much more in line with what other people um, project. That said, you know, the answer to your question depends on what policies we follow. Like if you look at those frontiers, you know, look at the alternative parameterization I showed you and look at that frontier, there's a pretty sizable range of mortality numbers and economic costs that, that you know, even if you follow optimal policies, depend on where society decides to land on that frontier and how much we're gonna um, weight economic losses versus um, mortality. The, the, you know, the non-pecuniary emotional costs of fatalities. And um, we don't, you know, we're, we're not the ones who should choose that, um, and it, but it's a very big question for every society, every country, where they're gonna, and where on, you know, A, they want, you, you know, every country should try to get onto the best frontier they can, but, there's still a big issue of where on that frontier a society decides to be. Okay, well, we're running very close to the end and I'm going to end with a request which we've had from Heidi Zamzar. Uh, please, could you re-give the link to the interactive site? Sure, I mean, I'd like to say it's actually in the, listed in the paper. So if you download the paper, um, I, I'll put up the link now. Oh, sorry, I'm not screen sharing. I don't, the, I think, John, do you want me to screen share that or do, would yep. you like me? Okay. It would be nice if you could. Okay, I can, let's see, uh, here we are. Oops, give me one sec, there we are. So, there it is, and if you have the paper, it's also in the paper. Um. Okay, so I'm sorry that we don't have time to go through all the other questions we've got. It remains to me to thank everyone for participating and to thank you, Mike, for a wonderful talk on this very crucial topic. Good afternoon and goodbye.